uh, thank you for having us today. And when I say us, I mean myself and Kathy. We appreciate the invitation. Brother Jim, we always love coming to Miles Road. Uh, it's like a home away for, from home for us. This is, uh, we feel comfortable here. We know a lot of you. We've gotten to know you over the years. We appreciate you. We love you. And we always look forward to coming down here. And for you romantics in the audience, I want to tell you briefly how I met Kathy, my beautiful wife. August of 1977, we were at a Christian youth camp in Calhoun, Georgia. My dad, I was born and raised in Columbia, South Carolina. In 1973, my dad moved our family to Calhoun, Georgia. We stayed there until 1978, five years later, and we moved back to Columbia. So in August of 77, we're at a Christian youth camp. I'm walking through a door into a uh, dining hall, and this girl walks by me and says, What's up, dude? <laughs> and uh, she was a 17-year-old teenage girl, and I was a stunningly handsome, charming 15-year-old teenager. <laughs> and the crazy thing about it is when my dad moved us back to Columbia, we went our separate ways. Our teenage romance, if you could call it that, was over and done. We went about our lives. We both were married, children, raising families, careers. And in March of 2013, I went back to that town in Georgia to visit a friend, and I ran into Kathy. Thirty days later, she was my wife. So um, it's funny how those things work out sometimes. She might not say that it worked out that well, but I think it did. <laughs> but, um, again, we're glad to be here. Really weren't sure we were going to make it. As a lot of you know, that after my career in football was over, I wrestled professionally from 1987 to 2000. An injury, a string of serious injuries ended my career. Fifteen surgeries later, here I stand. But I'm still very involved, even though at my age and with the physical limitations I have, I'm still very involved in pro wrestling. I just can't get in the ring and perform as a performer. But we still make a lot of appearances. We do a lot of things all over the country. Uh, we were in Dublin, Georgia yesterday at an event called Legends Fest. And there were about 20 legends in pro wrestling there. Guys that are retired, my age or older. But guys that are iconic names that many of you would know, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, Paul Orndorff, Nikita Koloff, Ted DiBiase, and a guy named The Patriot was there as well. And uh, when you've got, even at our advanced age with our beat-up, crippled-up bodies, you've got a room full of alpha males, A personalities. And the way these things work is we are all basically free agents. We negotiate with a promoter what it takes to get us to that town for that event. And then also, too, you're going to keep all your merchandising. We all have a table set up, and we sell our pictures, our shirts, our action figures, and in my case, masks, DVDs, anything that pertains to my character. And everybody does that, and we all negotiate our own guarantee to get there. Well, you've got 20 guys there, and typically the way it works is when you get there, after about an hour or so, the promoter will come around and hand you an envelope with your guaranteed money in it, the money that you agreed that it would take to get you to show up there. And then you keep the money from all your merchandising. Well, as this event goes on longer and longer, this guy's not come around and paid anybody. I went to him, and I said, hey, buddy, I need to get paid. He said, well, bear with me, and I'll get everybody their envelope later. 
Well, to make a long story short, this cat didn't pay anybody. And he ended up in a, basically a broom closet with about 20 professional wrestlers surrounding him. <laughs> and everybody wanted their money. And he had no money to give anybody. And I honestly thought, I said, I'm not going to get to Somerville because I'm going to be a witness to a murder. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, there were a couple of guys that were on the verge of doing bodily harm to this cat. And uh, fortunately, a couple of us got paid and uh, got out of there and got our money and got out of there. But uh, we ended up getting in town last night about 11 o'clock, and we thank you for the wonderful room over at the hotel and uh, we got settled in, got in bed about 12 o'clock, and I woke up at 3 o'clock, and, and Kathy and I have decided we're going to stay in town probably for a couple of days and enjoy Charleston and Somerville, and I realized, we live in Columbia, and I realized that I had left something in Columbia that if I'm going to stay in town a few extra days, I need. And I knew I was to speak at service at 8.30 this morning, so I got up at 3, took a shower. 4 o'clock, I'm on the road back to Columbia. And uh, I got what I needed, and I turned around and headed back, and I got back about 7.40. So uh, it's been a fun, hectic weekend, and uh, we almost witnessed a murder as well, but we're glad to be here. And um, Brother Jim told me that this would be a different service than the 8.30, and oh, is he correct. It's louder. Uh, we got more folks in the choir, and we got more folks in the audience, and we've got some full-grown men in the house. And uh, we appreciate you guys being here. And... Uh, as an old offensive lineman, could I have my offensive lineman raise their hand? All right, God bless you guys. <laughs> we appreciate you. Nothing happens without you. Not a thing. But we're glad you're here, team, staff, and we wish you the very best. Hope you guys have a great year. I know camp's tough, and you're ready for the first game. I've been there. I've been where you're at. We did play football back in the 80s, as you saw. <laughs> and we were able to video it to prove to you that we played football. <laughs> now, I played at South Carolina from 1980 to 1984, and we were not affiliated with the Southeastern Conference. We were a major independent, and I enjoyed that. I would have rather been that way rather than restricted to a conference schedule. As a freshman, I was fortunate to block for a Heisman Trophy winner, George Rogers, who just said some very nice things about me. We got to go to Michigan on the road and play against Bo Beckler and Anthony Carter and win at the big house. We went to the Coliseum in Los Angeles and played against Ronnie Light, Dennis Smith, Marcus Allen, lost by a touchdown on the road. We went to Georgia later that year, and what a battle. George Rogers is a senior who would later win the Heisman that year. Herschel Walker is a true freshman, battling it out. We lose 13 to 10. Georgia goes on to win the national championship. So we weren't restricted to that conference schedule. We could go to Michigan. We could go to Southern Cal. We could go to Florida State. We went to LSU, so we got to play a wide variety of teams like that. And, of course, we played Clemson every year. And uh, any of you guys ever heard of William Perry? <laughs> any you guys know who he is? All right. Great football player. I played at Irmo High School. I graduated in 1980. William played at Aiken High School. He graduated in 1979. We were in the same region together in high school. So we played against each other every for two years in high school. I was a year ahead of him. I'm a freshman at South Carolina in 1980. He is a senior at Aiken. But we end up graduating at the same time because of after the 81 season at the University of South Carolina, I left the football team for a year. And I went back in 83 when Joe Morrison got the job and played 83-84. Had I not left, I would have been out in 83. 
But because I did that, that put William and I graduating at the same time. So I played against him two years in high school, four years in college, and he was always about 50 pounds heavier than me and was a beast. Not a great pass rusher, 370, 380 pounds. He was going to try to run over you every time, try to bull rush you. I'd rather he do that. I struggled with fast guys on the edge. I'd rather a guy try to run over me. But I was not going to move him off the football. You just couldn't move him. You might be able to get in his way, position yourself between him, him and your running back, but you are not going to move him off the line of scrimmage. So this, my center and I, 1984, my senior year, William's senior year, we devised a plan where we were going to get or do away with William early in the game. Now, I know none of you offensive linemen have ever done anything like this, but the Bible says if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So I'm going to confess my sin to you. We talked our offensive coordinator into running a simple dive on the very first play of the game. The purpose was William mostly lined up head on the center. Occasionally he would shade, maybe down into a gap. But we knew, knew first play of the game he was going to be head up on the center. The center can stand him up and I can come down on a knee, and I mean just blow his knee out and he's gone the first play of the game. And we lined him up, center stood him up, and I come down on that knee, that left knee, and I hear this oh, grunt, and I thought, that's it. He's done. He's gone. And as I roll up and get up, I notice that he's, he's limping a little bit. And he stops, and he shakes it off, and he just walks back to the huddle. <laughs> like that. And I said, it's going to be a long day. <laughs> but we won 22 to 21. And, uh, but anyway, I want to share with you my story and what the Lord's done for me. He's been good to all of us, but I think he's been especially good to me. He's been very merciful to me, very gracious to me, and he's given me quite a few opportunities that I don't deserve. But he's, then again, he's done that for all of us. He's a good God, and there's not one of us in here that's deserving of what he's done for us and what he does for us and the love that he's bestowed upon us. But I want to share with you my life, and in doing so, I'm going to have to tell you about some of the things I've done where I can get you to the place where I got where I needed him the most. Uh, as I told you, I was born in Columbia, South Carolina. And all of us in here throughout our life, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, where you're at in life, each and every one of us daily, day after day after day, will make decisions that will affect you in your life. Some of those decisions will affect you in ways you'll never be able to get over. There's a lot of you in here, you've made decisions on where you're going to go to school. You made a decision on which sport you were going to participate in. You've made a decision on what you were going to major in, who you're going to date. A lot of us have made decisions on who we're going to marry, how many children we're going to have, what we're going to do for our career, for our livelihood. Those are important decisions. The biggest decision I've ever made in my life was on a Sunday night in Columbia, South Carolina, the Galilean Baptist Church, 10 years old. Our pastor was preaching. And the Lord rained down conviction on me so heavy, I did not think I could make it to the end of the service. As I told the, uh, the audience earlier, at 8.30, my heart, I felt like you could see it pounding through my shirt. I couldn't catch my breath. And the Lord had made it very clear to me as a 10-year-old boy that night that if I would have died, I would have died without him and would have died and gone to hell. The Bible clearly states there's a heaven and a hell. And decisions that you and I make will determine 
where we will spend eternity. And each and every one of us in here will spend eternity somewhere. And if the Lord doesn't come back in our lifetimes, every one of us in this room will die. I was looking at, some, at something on the internet this morning. Throughout the course of civiliza civilization, there have been about 108 billion people that have walked the face of the earth. About 7 billion are alive today. That means there's been 101 billion that lived and died on this earth. And if the Lord doesn't come back, that, will, that is what's, what will happen to each and every one of us. One day, there'll be a casket here, and they'll be preaching our funeral. And they'll take us out and bury us in a cemetery somewhere. It's appointed unto man once to die. So that'll happen if the Lord doesn't come back. And the decisions you make on whether or not you accept Christ into your life will make all the difference in the world on where you spend eternity. That night in Columbia, South Carolina, I walked the aisle. My dad met me about halfway down. I went down and I realized that I was lost. And I accepted Christ into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. The greatest decision I've ever made in my life. The most important decision I've ever made in my life. And as a young man, for many years after that, all I wanted to do was serve the Lord and be used of the Lord. Now, I was like any other boy at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I devoured sports. If you could throw it, hit it, kick it, I loved it. I had every magazine, every card, preseason magazines, you name it, I had it. I had thousands of football cards. I could tell you where they played college ball, how long they'd been in the NBA, Major League Baseball, the NFL. It didn't matter what sport it was. I mean, I studied it. But when I got saved, serving the Lord became the most important thing to me. It didn't do away with that love for sports. I started participating in organized football in the sixth grade. Realized in high school that I had a chance to go to college, get a scholarship, get my education uh, paid for. Had a lot of schools that wanted me to come play there. And for me, it was going to be South Carolina or Clemson. I grew up in a Gamecock household. And even though originally I verbally committed to Clemson, 24 hours later I backed out and I was a Gamecock. And I never regretted going to the University of South Carolina. Four of the greatest years of my life. Great things happened to me there. 1980, I played for a Heisman Trophy winner. Not many people can say that. I blocked for a guy that carried the football that won a Heisman Trophy. One of the best running backs he's ever put on a helmet. I was fortunate enough to have that dude as my teammate. Four years later, 1984, I played on, at that time, the best football team in school history. We were 9-0 at one point in the nation. I told the story earlier. We were second in the nation. We were 9-0. Nebraska was 9-0. They were number one. They played Oklahoma that day. Oklahoma beats them. We're playing Navy that day, a 3-6 and six football team. All we've got to do is go out and beat this 3-6 and six football team. We'll be the number one ranked team in the country. We'll be 10-0. We're guaranteed an Orange Bowl berth. And in all likelihood, we'll play for a national championship. That 3-6 and six football team beat our brains out that day and cost us a shot to be the number one team in the country, go to the Orange Bowl, and to play for a national championship. Just like that, all that was gone. We recovered the next week, beat Clemson, ended up 10-1, went to a Gator Bowl, lost a close game to Oklahoma State, ended up 10-2. At that point in time, we were the first and only team in Gamecock history to win 10 games, and that lasted until, until 2011. And Coach Furrier had a team that won 11, and they did that three years in a row. And that 84 team that won those 10 football games thought enough of me 
to elect me as their captain, as their most valuable player, and I was fortunate enough to be a consensus All-American. Now, you can do all those things and serve the Lord. A lot of guys have done that, but I wasn't one of them. That desire to serve the Lord from the night I walked in there and gave my life to the Lord and all the many years after that had now started to really be put on the back burner for me. I was a college football star. I was a big dude. I was something special. Serving the Lord just really didn't mean as much to me. I knew that the Lord was good to me, had blessed me, had saved me, had a Christian mom and dad, and I prayed occasionally, but hardly ever opened that thing up. I was more interested in getting to the bars, chasing the girls, and just being a, a stud on campus. Thought I had a chance to play in the NFL. I signed with the Tampa Bay Bucks in 1985. They traded me to the Falcons in 1986, and prior to the start of the 86, 86 season, the Atlanta Falcons told me, you're just not good enough. need you to turn your playbook in and go home. We're going to move on without you. And my football days were done. But I'd always been a big pro wrestling fan. And I knew that whenever football was over for me, whether it was after college, after an NFL career, I had a buddy of mine that played football here at the Citadel, and we had decided that when football ended for Dell, we were going to pursue a career as pro wrestlers. I went to my first live show when I was 10 years old in Columbia, South Carolina at the Township Auditorium, and I fell in love with pro wrestling that night. And man, I saw those guys in the ring that night, and they were something special to me. And I never got over that. And I watched it every Saturday, and I bought the magazines. Every Friday afternoon, my mom would go grocery shopping, and I would sit down at the magazine rack in the front of the grocery store and just look for those wrestling magazines. Wahoo McDaniel, Dory Funk, all those guys, man. Vern Gagne, Harley Race, Ray Stevens. Man, I just took it in. Those guys, they were bigger to me than any NFL player, any NBA player, any guy in Major League Baseball. And I was going to be one of those guys one day. So my football days are over. My buddy and I save our money, and we go through a school in Columbia, South Carolina that trained professional wrestlers. It was owned and operated by Lillian Ellison, who wrestled as the fabulous Moolah. For some of you old school wrestling fans, the most famous lady wrestler ever. These girls... These girls nowadays have nothing on Moolah. She was the ladies' champ for 28 years, 28 consecutive years. And she had a school there in Columbia. She was from Columbia, South Carolina. So we trained and we went through the school. And we started off on our pro wrestling career. Man, we had wide eyes and big dreams. And I was told, guys, it's going to be tough. You're going to do a lot of traveling. You're going to work in front of very, very small crowds. And you're not going to make any money. And that's exactly what happened we starved to death i'm telling you we did i borrowed money i went to a bank in columbia and got an unsecured loan just so i could make it i slept in my car i drive to a town i'd get to the building would wrestle i'd drive to the next town find a parking lot somewhere or a rest area on the side of the road and spend the night in my car get up the next morning go to a buffet eat breakfast go to a gold gym somewhere where i could shower i couldn't afford a hotel room I can get to the gym, I can work out, I can tan, I can shower. But I was going to be a pro wrestler. I had a dream. And we pursued. And we stayed after it. And pro wrestling is a lot like baseball. You got single A, double A, triple A, and we were slowly but surely working our way up through the minor league system. 
working in front of 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 people. And I'm telling you, I went almost two years before I got paid. I got handed an envelope one night after a match in Charlotte, North Carolina. The promoter had paid me $100. And when I got in my car, I beat my dash and I beat my chest and I yelled and screamed. I'd made $100 that night as a pro wrestler. I'd arrived, man. I was the big time. I met, I met a guy named Wahoo McDaniel one night, one of the most iconic names in that industry. He worked on the same card I was on. Well, he was an All-American football player at the University of Oklahoma, played 10 years in the NFL. In the offseason, he'd hit the road wrestling, and he was a star in both the NFL and as a pro wrestler. And he saw something in me, maybe it was the football background that we had, but he saw something in me that he liked, and he took me under his wing. And for the next two years, wherever Wahoo got booked, he made sure I got booked. Wherever Wahoo went, Dell went. And I picked his brain. And everything I could think to ask Wahoo about pro wrestling, I did. Probably got tired of him. But I was like a sponge. I was soaking it up. I was going to be a pro wrestler, man. I'm riding with Wahoo McDaniel. Doesn't get any better than this. I'm starving to death, but I'm riding with Wahoo. <laughs> well, eventually, Wahoo introduced me to a guy named Vern Gagne, who owned the American Wrestling Association. And they were on ESPN five days a week, Monday through Friday, from 4 to 5 o'clock. And for the first time in my life, I was going to be on TV as a professional wrestler. And not just any TV, I'm on ESPN. I'm not only going nationwide, I'm going worldwide. Now millions of people are getting to see how wonderful I am. <laughs> and it was a big break for me. It's a big, a, and early in my career, a very big break for me. I'm exposed to a nationwide, worldwide audience. I did a character called the Trooper. I dressed up like a highway patrolman. I had the big Smokey the Bear hat. I had my belt, my handcuffs, my flashlight, my nightstick, or my stick, my billy stick. And after I would beat my opponent, I would take out my ticket book and I'd write them a ticket and I'd plant it on their forehead. <laughs> and then being the good guy I was, I would revive them and wake them back up and leave the ring. Hand out little plastic badges on the way to the ring. I'm pursuing a career. I'm pursuing what I think is my dream. I'm doing what Dell wants to do. Now again, I, I, I take you back to that night in Columbia when I walked the aisle as a 10-year-old boy. Most important thing in my life then was serving the Lord and being someone God could use, not someone Wahoo McDaniel or Vern Gagne could use, but someone the Lord could use, maybe one day in the role of a minister, a pastor, a missionary. But now none of that means anything to me. I'm a pro wrestler, and I'm doing everything that goes with that. Once I'm on ESPN and I'm on a worldwide audience, I am no longer traveling the small towns in South Carolina and North Carolina I'm traveling the world, going all over the world, first class. And I'm doing things that, guy in that guys in that industry do. You're no different than a rock star. You perform in front of thousands of people every night, millions and millions on TV every week. And when you're done that night and you've worked in front of 10, 15, 20,000 people, heck, what do you do? You hit the bars. You're a big shot. You've got to be seen. You've got to be seen. You've got to be out and about. And people want to see you. They want to touch you. They want to feel you. They want to have a part of you. And they'll give you anything you want. Alcohol, drugs, 
women, whatever it was, it was all at our disposal. It was there for the taking. It's a very hedonistic lifestyle. I've seen very few guys in that industry, very few, that were full-time wrestlers on the road that could live a good Christian life. One of them you'll see tonight, George South. Amen. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I was breaking in that business, George was an example of the way a Christian man could live his life in that business. And he always was. And I always admired George for that. He didn't do what the rest of us did. He wasn't in the bars. He wasn't staying up all night snorting cocaine, smoking weed, chasing women, drinking alcohol. He did none of that. He lived his life by example. The way I should have been living mine. But I wanted to be a star. That was all that mattered to me. It was all about me, me now at this point in time. I could have cured less what God wanted out of me. As a matter of fact, God was so far removed from my mind that it didn't even matter. But there's one thing that I'm so thankful of. is the perfect salvation that I accepted that night at 10 years old from a perfect God who gave a perfect sacrifice, His Son, for us. Perfect salvation that I could never, ever, ever merit. I couldn't do anything to earn it. Let me read you something. From Ephesians 2.8. The Bible says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, in that not of yourselves. It's, not, it's nothing that any of you have done, me included. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Folks, there's nothing that you and I can do to merit salvation. There's no amount of goodness. You can't tithe enough. You can't be good enough. You can't donate, donate enough to charity. You can't sing in the choir enough years to earn that. If we could do that, if we as human beings, just through good works, could earn our way into heaven, why would have Christ left heaven and come and went through what he went through? and died on the cross, and went through the horrible, horrible torture and torment that he went through with nails driven through his hands and through his feet. If we could do it on our own, he wouldn't have had to do that. It's got nothing to do with what we can do. It's a perfect salvation provided by a perfect God with his perfect sacrifice, his perfect son, Jesus Christ. But it's also a perfect salvation in a sense, while there's nothing I can do to earn it, there's not one thing I can do to lose it either. Then it would be a very imperfect salvation if I could just, like that, lose it. Time and time and time again, and it's not. It's a perfect salvation. So no matter how Dale Wilkes lived, no matter what Dale Wilkes was doing, Dale Wilkes was still, still saved, but Dale Wilkes in no way, shape, or form was serving the Lord. I was living that rock and roll lifestyle, man. I was traveling the world first class. At the biggest house in the neighborhood, making tons of money, living the life. From the world standpoint, I was an extremely successful guy. But that's the world looking at it. As my career progressed and went on and on and on, I later went to work for a company called the Global Wrestling Federation. And they saw me as a guy they felt like they could build their company around. They wanted me to be their top guy. But not as that highway patrol looking character called the trooper. They had a different idea. They presented me one night, literally hours before our very first TV taping, 
they had a costume box, the promoter did. He invited me over to his motel room. We're literally hours away from this show's first ever TV taping. He said, we got an idea for you. And he opens up this costume box, and out comes a red, white, and blue mask, red, white, and blue tights, red, white, and blue trunks, and red, white, and blue boots. He said, we want to call you the Patriot. We had gone into Kuwait to liberate Kuwait at that time when Iraq had invaded Kuwait in 1990. Patriotism was at a very high level. And wrestling has always taken advantage of things like that. Situations like that. You know, the evil Japanese guy, the awful Iranian guy, the Iraqi guy, whatever it is. You know, they, they, they pit each other that way. And here was going to be this flag-waving, baby-faced good guy high-fiving mamas and babies and just, I mean, the ultimate good guy. The Patriot. How can you not like the Patriot? He's dressed in the flag. <laughs> and they said, we think you are the perfect guy to pull this off. Three hours later, I'm in an arena in Dallas, Texas. There's probably 7,000 people in that building. They had never seen that character. They had never heard of him. That was the first night he'd ever been out. And the house lights went down, and that big spotlight hit me, and I went through the curtain. And that place erupted. I mean, everybody stood on their feet. And I could literally hear the floor shaking. And I've got chill bumps telling you about it now. And I said, this is it. Man, this is it. This is it. What an idea. And it took my career to a level I never dreamed I could go to. That year, Pro Wrestling Illustrated voted that character the best character in all of pro wrestling. And it just put me into a stratosphere. And I worked for the best companies in the world, traveled the world, belts, championships, titles. But along the way, while wrestling is entertainment, there is a predetermined outcome, folks. We know who's going to win, who's going to lose, and how it's going to happen. But it's still very physical. You've got big athletic men throwing each other around, running each other, flipping out of the ring, hitting each other with chairs. The one thing I'd always depended on to sustain me, my body, started failing me. It started breaking down. I started having injuries, major injuries. And to avoid surgery, to avoid taking time off the road, because in that business, if you're off TV too much, they'll forget about you and they'll move on. And the next biggest, brightest star will take your place. And so to avoid having to take time off from those injuries, I had a guy one night introduce me to prescription pain medication. A guy named Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning. I was complaining about an elbow that was hurting. He said, what are you taking for it? I said, I'm taking goodie powders. Y'all know what goodie powders are? <laughs> he mocked me. He said, goodie powders? He said, you idiot. He goes, don't you have a doctor that will write you a prescription for pain medication? I said, I don't. I said, but when I get home, I'll get one. He said, okay, in the meantime, here, take these. Take two before you go to bed. Take two before you match tomorrow. And I did. And I slept like a baby. And the next night, I went out and did what I'd been unable to do for weeks. I performed at a high level. The injury was still there. The elbow was still swollen. But I had no pain. Man, I felt great. felt wonderful. I thought, wow, well, this stuff works. And it did. And I took it innocently enough. I took those two that night just to go out and do what I was paid to do, to go to work, to do my job, to entertain the people that had paid their hard-earned money to buy a ticket. That's the only reason I did it. I didn't do it to get high. I didn't do it to catch a buzz. I didn't do it to get stoned. I did it because I wanted to do my job. 
This is how I feed my family. This is how I pay my bills. This is my job, my career. I have sacrificed for this. I've dreamed of this. I'm not going to let a sore elbow stop me. Well, those two pills that night, later on, had to be four. Then it had to be six and eight and ten. And it just wasn't enough. The body starts getting a little immune to that. And the injuries kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Now comes surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery. And finally, I'm done. I'm done. I had two major injuries that just absolutely did it for me. I was done. Late 30s. It was over. I could not physically continue to go. But I was a complete, full-fledged drug addict. I was a drunkard. And I wasn't a guy copping heroin on the street corner or in a back alley somewhere getting cracked. I was getting it legal from my doctor. He was writing it on a pad, signing off on it. I was taking it to a pharmacy, filling it. Absolutely nothing illegal about that. But those two that night had grown to six, eight, ten, to eventually I was taking 120 pain pills a day. I would take 20 at a time. And I wouldn't swallow, I would chew them up because I had found that powder form. Pain medication goes to work a lot quicker than tablet form. So I'd chew them up. Now, those 120, and God knows, I'm telling the truth, I'm not exaggerating any here. That was just the pain medication. I was taking another 60 to 80 Valium, Somas, Halcyon, Xanax a day. I was a full-blown drug addict. I'd started out my life wanting to live for the Lord, wanting to do something for Him, and wanting to accomplish something for Him. But along the way, what I wanted became more important than what He wanted. And here I was. Finally, the doctors cut me off. Doctor after doctor said, look, dude, you got a problem. I can't in all good conscience write you another prescription. I'd been around enough doctors, I'd learned how to call the prescription in myself. I got a doctor to write me a prescription. I took his name his DEA number, which is his ID number as a doctor, he gives that every time he calls a prescription in. He gives his name, the address of his office, and his DEA number. And I had a good buddy of mine that was a doctor, and I learned how to call these prescriptions in. And the first time I ever tried it, I was scared to death. I thought I was going to throw up. I was literally sweating from being dope sick and from scared to death I was going to get caught doing this. And I picked up the phone, called the pharmacy, and I pre pretended to be the doctor. And it worked. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm in now. And I did it time and time and time and time again. And I got away with it until one Friday afternoon, I called a prescription in to a pharmacy, and the pharmacist was suspicious. So they called the doctor that I was pretending to be, called him back. He said, I've never heard of that person, and I didn't call him in. The pharmacist said, okay, thank you. When I went to pick it up the next morning, I pulled up to the window told him who I was picking up a prescription for. The next thing I know, cop cars are surrounding me. Took me to jail. Obtaining prescription by fraud, that's a felony. Say South Carolina and probably everywhere else, to the best of my knowledge. I was arrested 28 times for doing that. 28 times. And probably only because of some name recognition that I had. All-American football player at South Carolina, big-time professional wrestler. Judges, the criminal justice system kept giving me a break. Let's put the boy on probation, okay? He's not out on the street. I mean, you know what prescriptions are. We'll send him to rehab. They did that four times. That didn't work. 
Finally, a judge that I'd been before twice before, he said, I'm done with you, man. He said, the first time you came in, I put you on probation. The second time, I sent you to rehab. This is the third time you've been before me. I'm done with you. 18 months, South Carolina Department of Corrections. Now, this wasn't an overnight stay at the county detention center. I was going to prison. They shackled me in the courtroom and led me out, and I spent 11 months in a prison in Aiken, South Carolina. Mr. Big Shot. Thought I was somebody. Thought I was the guy everybody else wanted to be, and look what a fool I was, right? I wanted to serve the Lord at one time and do something for the Lord and be something and, and help people and, and be an encouragement and have the Lord use me. I'm sitting in a prison in Aiken, South Carolina, and I have lost everything. My family, it's gone. My friends, most of them are gone. My finances, you get a big drug problem, you'll blow those too when you got the kind of legal problems I had. They were gone. Everything was gone. I sat in that prison for 11 months, but it was right where I needed to be because that was right where the Lord got my attention. And I was able to stay there long enough get clear-headed. I couldn't get any pills. I couldn't get any drugs. And it wasn't just pain pills. It was cocaine. It was everything you could imagine. But it was there in that prison where the Lord took me where I needed to be. Saved my life. Saved my life. My mom told me one day, she said, I hope they send you to prison. I'd rather go there and visit you than to go to the graveyard and put flowers on your grave. And that's what happened. And it was there that the Lord got Dale's attention. And it was where Dale realized, dude, you've been a fool. You've been an absolute idiot. You really have. You thought all this stuff that looked good to the world was important. You thought living that life, being that guy was important. And look what it's got you. Nothing. Not one thing. Not one thing. Guys, I'm going to tell you, girls, man, woman, boy, child. I was a 40-year-old man when I went to prison, so it can have just not young, stupid teenage kids. Had a family. Happened to me. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, worth dying and going to hell over. There's absolutely nothing worth that relationship with the Lord. I'd have been better off if I'd have never been in a wrestling ring and had lived for the Lord. I got a mom that's 75 years old, and I'm going to close, but I'm going to tell you something. 75 years old, you know what she's done for a living her whole life? Clean other people's houses. Gets on her hands and knees and scrubs their bathrooms, their toilets, their kitchens. She got saved when she was 14. And she's lived for the Lord since she was 14. Nobody's ever asked for her autograph. Nobody's ever bought a picture of her and wanted her to autograph it. Nobody's ever bought a t-shirt with her likeness on it. They've never bought her action figure. Nobody's ever wanted to take her picture outside of anybody in her family. But if you could ask Kathleen Wilkes today, hey, you've cleaned other people's houses for a living, but you've served the Lord. Was it worth it? Guarantee you. Guarantee you. I promise you that. And I know we all have dreams and aspirations of what we want to do, but please, I beg you, if you're here today and you do not know the Lord as your personal Savior, the Bible said, what would it profit a man if he would gain the whole world and lose his soul? Guys, there's no amount of fame and fortune in football, and I love it, and I wish you all the best, but there's nothing worth you dying and going to hell over. And I read it from Ephesians 2.8. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved. John 3, he says, for verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born again, he cannot enter in the kingdom of heaven. It's not about how good you've been. 
We should do those things once we're saved and we're Christians. It's got nothing to do with that. Nothing. Have you ever accepted Him into your heart as your Savior? I promise you this. There will come a day. Is there one of you in here? And I'm going to shut up. I'd like for you to raise your hand. Is there one of you in here that can promise me with all certainty that this time next week you'll still be alive? Is there one of you? If so, raise your hand. There's not. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Just like that, it could be over. My mom and sister had a guy come all the way across the interstate two months ago. They were going one way on 26. He was coming the other. He went across the median, hit them. Car flipped, threw my sister out. They could have been killed like that. That quick, it could happen to any of us. Any of us. And once that's done, if you're not prepared to meet the Lord, there's no do-over. Your fate is settled. You're in eternity without God in a literal burning hell. And I know that's an unpleasant subject to talk about, but it's reality. It's in the Bible. Just as John 3, 16, God so loved the world in, in here. So if you die without Christ, you'll go to a literal burning hell. That's also in here. And that's as real as John 3, 16. So I urge you, if you don't know him, please don't. Don't let another day pass. And if you do, give your life to him. Live for him. We can enjoy all these, we can enjoy all these other things, but with him first in our life. Thank you. Love you. Now, Wilkes.